This is the <coughs> feast of the presentation of Christ in the temple, and we only get to celebrate it on a Sunday about once every seven years. Since the liturgical renewal in the church, we have, as I've mentioned many times, stopped the practice of bumping the Sunday for every kind of saint's day or occasion. So if it was the feast of Mother Cabrini's shoes, you <laughs> celebrated that day instead of, you know, the uh, uh, Sunday, the day of the resurrection. But feasts of our Lord and feasts of the Incarnation can be celebrated on a Sunday uh, when they fall on a Sunday. So that's what we're doing because it gives me the opportunity to preach about Candlemas, which is the other uh, word that is used for this Sunday, certainly in the English uh, church tradition. So I want to say some things about the source and origin of the feast, what it might mean to mention briefly the reading from the prophet Malachi, or as my classmate Stephen Scarcia said at Neshota House once, reading a lesson at Evensong, the book of the prophet Malachi. <laughs> so it shows you that even smart people can make mistakes about these, these kinds of things. And then to focus on the gospel, because there's some interesting things that have uh, pricked my interest because of my current obsession. And uh, so I want to talk about Luke and what he says about uh, the uh, presentation of Christ in the temple and its significance. And then to say some things, because there's, we, we weren't able to walk around, have a procession like uh, we had planned, but to say something about these kinds of ceremonies and so forth, some people think uh, that, um, you know, maybe they're just simply not necessary. <clears throat> and maybe connect this to the fact that February 2nd every year is Groundhog Day. <laughs> so we want to maybe say a word about Groundhog Day. I think Puxatani Phil, or whoever it is, probably if he was around here, he couldn't see his shadow and would go back in. So that's the, that's the thing. The feast of the presentation is at least as old as the 4th century, the 300s. And it, is a, it appears to be Western in origin, but also uh, celebrated by the Eastern Church. And uh, they have a slightly different take on its meaning and so forth. And by the time we get into uh, the early Middle Ages, we begin to see in the West uh, an evolution where the focus is on uh, the illuminative processes of God, candles, light, blessing candles for various purposes, both for use in the church and at home. And in England, the name for that, of course, was Candlemas, and that's why they talked about it. Eamon Duffy, who is an uh, English historian, he wrote a wonderful book called The Stripping of the Altars in about 1994, and it was for the purpose of saying uh, that during the English Reformation and in other parts of Northern Europe, uh, the claims that uh, the, the leaders of, of the Reformation were getting rid of superstitious practices and people were wallowing in a kind of dark ignorance about the nature of Christianity simply doesn't hold up. 
and he spends time talking about it in England, where the English Reformation took a slightly different turn than it did on the continent of Europe. So Duffy says, the purification was marked by one of the most elaborate processions of the liturgical year when every parishioner was obliged to join in carrying a blessed candle, which was offered together with a penny to the priest at Mass. And we'll see when we get to Luke that there is some connection between this kind of thing. The blessing of candles and procession took place immediately before the parish Mass. And in addition to the candles offered to the priest, many others were blessed. The people then processed around the church carrying lighted candles and the Nuc Dimittis was sung, which we sang uh, a fragment of at the the Candlemas procession liturgy uh, this morning. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared. It's famous. We read it at Evensong every uh, every day. So, uh, or evening prayer when we read it. So it's been around for a long time. So I just thought I'd mention that because it's important to see that there is a, a, a venerable history to this and to see that it doesn't have much to do in one sense with ceremonies. It has to do with the thematic understanding of a, a light to the nations and the candle symbolized that. And we're going to see this come up as we move through Lent and then to Easter when we speak about the presence of the light of Christ. So uh, the divine light through the birth of the Savior has now been made present to the world. And uh, that is an important thing that we celebrate. Malachi, uh, the prophet, was talking today about the temple being purified and God's um, purifying work uh, with regard to the temple as a future possibility. And, of course, Christian people will take this, this reading up, and even though it does not directly in, in the historical period in which Malachi was exercising his prophetic ministry uh, connect to Jesus in that sense, Christians read it and understood it in some way to connect to this. And so they have appropriated that text. It's mostly famous, those of us who, who uh, like music, for the line, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? The basso part in Handel's Messiah, right? So when we hear that, he's singing from the prophet Malachi and speaking about that, those processes. So let me talk about Luke, Luke's gospel. This is where this story appears. And... Uh, there's a, there's a controversy in the text that is important just to speak about. The King James Version, which is the authorized version, says that Joseph and Mary and Jesus uh, went to the temple for her purification. And the New Revised Standard Version, which is in the family of translations in English that connect to the King James. You know, the King James, there was a couple of revisions, uh, very modest, and then we have the Revised Standard Version. And now we have the New Revised Standard Version, and they're in a, in a line. They use uh, the same 
texts, uh, original language texts, and so forth. And in the NRSV, it's translated when the time came for their purification. So the great question is, didn't Luke know anything about what the, the law really said, the Torah really said? Because they did that because of what it says in the book of Leviticus. And it's her purification. Probably the King James uh, might be preferred here. But I'm not sure. And the reason I'm not sure is that uh, Luke was a Gentile Christian. And so while he knew about all these things, he maybe has lacked the precision that he might have uh, when that text, when he wrote that, or who wrote, whoever wrote Luke. And the, the fact of the matter is that in the most ancient manuscripts, it's their purification, not her purification. Because remember, the King James Bible was uh, translated from manuscripts that are no earlier than the 9th century A.D. So now we possess partial manuscripts and others that go back to the 3rd century or the 4th century. Not a whole lot of them, but most of them say their purification. So maybe it has something to do with uh, Luke's understanding of the connection between uh, the presentation of Christ and the implications for, for all Christians, including Gentile Christians, and he was one of them. And so he was interested in say, uh, speaking about the universal implications of what it is that's going on. There is confusion, but what Luke was interested in more than speaking about their purification or her purification was that this is a parallel in the Old Testament to the presentation of Samuel in the temple. Not in the, the temple in Jerusalem, but when the, the boy Samuel was presented by Hannah in the temple. And if you read this uh, in the original, you'll see that who we're going to encounter in this story from Luke today has two people. Simeon, where we get the new Demidus, and Anna. But in the text, what, had, what happened was they took the, the accent mark off of the first letter in Greek, which would have made it Hannah, not Anna. And so Luke is clearly drawing a connection between those two things because of Aunt Hannah's obedience and commitment and faithfulness and Anna in the temple, who I'm sure that um, religious communities uh, uh, for years have thought of Anna as some pre-example of a contemplative nun, <laughs> Right? that she's an example and she goes back to the temple and that's, that's who she is in that sense. So I mentioned that uh, February the 2nd is Groundhog Day and I was thinking of the movie that Bill Murray, is, that, was it, is it Bill Murray? <laughs> Bill Murray uh, was in called Groundhog Day and it's about a guy who has to keep repeating the day until he gets it right. 
So there's some Christian people and some who aren't Christian people, particularly who think that all these ceremonies and all this repetitive stuff is a superstitious practice because we're doing it over and over again to get it right. Right? So we want to do something about uh, doing it that way, and we'll someday we'll get there. It's like the rector, the priest I began my ministry with as a young priest, uh, used to say when we'd read evening prayer together, and one of us made a mistake reciting the psalms together or doing something like that, we go into the sacristy and he said, well, don't worry about it. We're going to have to get it right in purgatory. <laughs> but that's not what I think these re- this reading is about. That's not what I think Candlemas processions and other things like that are about. It's a kind of uh, issue of faithfulness. We often forget because we get so caught up in the how-to and the the reason we do this is because we love God. It's a sign of our thankfulness. It isn't a sign that we wish to receive something as the result of that. Although many people may get that confused, it's not. We don't, we're not. We're doing it because we love God. And in Mary and Joseph's case, it was their faithfulness to the promises of the covenant. Elizabeth Johnson, a a very fine theologian, uh, in one of her books said, Here, the young friend of God, called to a prophetic work, who has sung her Magnificat, given birth, and pondered the meaning of it all, carries out with her husband the law of the covenant in ceremonies imbued with their people's profound gratitude for the living God's gracious and liberating care. Depicting so clearly Mary's religious engagement in temple worship, according to Torah, this text offers a strong antidote to a remembrance that would erase her Jewish identity and paint her as a Gentile Christian. Because that's what we've been doing a lot, you know, in biblical studies and everything for a long, long time. And one of the most important trends in New Testament scholarship is bringing back to the center the Jewish nature of what's being done here. And how important that is for the promises of the Savior and for a, a refreshed kingdom on earth and how we understand what that means. Anna and Simeon are examples of people who have been patiently waiting. And so when you and I stop to think about uh, our own faith commitments or their lack or things in your life that you have uh, realized you need to be patient about, is something that can ultimately produce spiritual fruit because they both got their wish. They both saw God's redemptive work beginning in the person of Jesus in the temple. An affirmation that this is going to have universal consequences, not just for uh, the Gentiles, but for everybody, the people of the covenant, And they're going to be part of it. And they have seen the beginning of this. They have seen the light. And for them, that is a very important and fulfilling thing. 
So Mary and Joseph symbolically present Jesus in the temple. And Luke doesn't mention it specifically, but here's how it went. You went into the temple with the boy, or the firstborn. You went into the temple. You presented him to the temple. Here. Here, take this kid. You know. But what they did symbolically was present him and then pay five shekels to get him back. They paid a fee for his return. So some might argue, and some have, that this may have something to do with stewardship for our children. And to not localize it to the point to say, well, this is just about firstborn children. It's about all our kids and how we look after them and how we exercise stewardship. And by extension, what we'll discover is the message, the saving message of Jesus is about how we have stewardship for one another. As my grandfather, it doesn't mean we have to eat off the same plate with everybody. But it does mean that we need to have sympathy and compassion for one another and organize society around principles that see that that becomes more, more prominent than it is at present. And that's the, the goal in every age. That's what we, we do. So there's something in this reading about that. So I would suggest if you own a book of common prayer, which I hope you do, that you look up somewhere in, in evening prayer, either write one or write two, and read the Nunc Dimittis to yourself. Use it as a kind of meditation, that canticle. We sing it, uh, you know, in even song, but we also sing it at... Uh, of Compline. Every time we sing Compline in the church, we sing the Nunc Dimittis in some form or another. I don't know if you've ever seen the series um, uh, uh, Smiley's People with Alec Guinness. Or what was the first one? Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? You can get them on DVD. It's about before the fall of communism. And at the end of each episode, they sing a Nunc Dimittis which is a contemporary, modern nunc dimittis. It is absolutely beautiful. And it's, it's uh, sung at the end of every episode of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, it's wonderful. So I commend it to you. So read the canticle. And remember that uh, this story is not just about Jesus. It is about all of us who seek to serve God and live lives congruent with his purposes.